Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the CMYK Talks podcast. Uh, my name is Seth. It's good to be with you. Uh, Matt always gives me these opportunities to talk, and it's always on an off week about, like, we're not in a series or something, so I just get to talk about whatever I want. And so this week, I'll be honest with you, um, this was a hard one to put together. I've been in a weird place in life over the last couple of years. I've alluded to some of that in previous talks, and today we're going to talk about it at length. Um, so yeah, uh, it's going to be a little emotional for me. It can be anyway, so so please understand that. But then also, um, I just need you to know that there's certain there's certain pieces of my story that I'm telling today that might come across as me belittling uh, parts of my narrative and people that have been a part of my narrative. And I want to upfront say like, I in no way, shape or form mean to belittle anyone or talk poorly about anyone. I just want to tell my story and the experiences I've had. <clears throat> so, uh, if you'd give me that, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> I'd, uh, thank you uh, ahead of time. Uh, but yeah, that's why this is so hard. It's just a big part of my story and where I've been and maybe where I'm headed. So, um, with that, uh, we will get going. Uh, so last, uh, two weeks ago, I was sitting in my advisor's office on the MSUB campus and my advisor is quickly becoming one of my favorite people in life. He's a very, uh, special person to me. He's very dynamic. He's very thoughtful. He, he questions everything, which I find to be fascinating in life, but I was sitting in his office and every time I meet with him, I sit down to talk advising and what, what is supposed to be, uh, probably a 15, 20 minute conversation about my educational future ends up being a two hour conversation about everything but my educational future, which is what makes this guy so fun. So last time I'm in his office, this is two weeks ago, we're supposed to be talking about the next semester of class. And we ended up talking about our favorite books instead. And so he pulls out this children's book called The Miraculous Adventure of Edward Tulane. And he looks at me and he's like, how much time do you have? And I was like, I got time. Let's do this. So he stands up I was not ready for what he was about to do. He stands up, closes his office door, and opens the book and starts reading to me. And I'll admit, at first, it was a little awkward. I was like, okay, I haven't been read to out loud, not only a children's book, but any book for that matter, in a really long time. And he starts reading to me, and he gets to the first five chapters, and it truly is a marvelous book. And we actually did have to talk about other things, so he gave me the book to take home, which I finished that night. reading out loud to my wife, actually, because I was so inspired. But what I was so inspired by was the fact that he read a story out loud to me, and there's a lot of power in story. And so what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to read you four different stories. Now, these stories come from the Bible, and so when I say that, there's a mix of emotions and ideas and thoughts and experiences and a bunch of context you as the listener have with stories from the Bible. But what I'm asking you to do in this moment is to simply listen to these things as story. That that this is not something to approach in this moment as a literal truth, thing that happened, moment in history, but I just need you to hear the story. And that's what I'm asking you to do, which can be hard for some of you. I understand that. Um, and that's why I'm asking um, if you'd maybe give me that opportunity to simply read these to you as a story. So that is what I'm going to do. Story number one. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, yes, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. 
The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son, Isaac. He then chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. He then tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from the heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld even me from even me, your son, your only son. Story number two. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't, want, we don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took their gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf, and then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. The Lord said to Moses, Quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, These are your gods, O Israel, whom brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them. And then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Story number three. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And then the Lord asked Satan, 
Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has no good reason to fear. Sorry about that. So Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear the Lord. You have always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but do not harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Story number four. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And when the voice replied, it said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. And so his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he got up and was baptized. And afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Thank you so much for indulging me in story time. Uh, these stories are special because there's something, I, I, wonder, I wonder if there's something to be noticed in the midst of some of these narratives and stories that happen within the context of the Bible. These, uh, these stories um, kind of have a flow to them. So, so in all of these stories, we see a main character with an idea of who God is and how he operates, right? Abraham um, obviously has this relationship with God because he talks to him. And then, and then Moses, at the beginning of the story, it says he's up on a mountain with God for so long the people are waiting for him to come back. And Job, Job talks about being the best man on the land, and God's actually touting Job's name. And then this last guy, Saul, we, we see in the context of the story that he's actually Jewish. So he has an understanding of, of who God is because of his Jewish culture. 
Now, this understanding of who God is in our lives is something that there's some verbiage I want us to work around today. And the verbiage I want to start the story with is this thing called construction. That that all of us, and these narratives show that, but in all of our lives in these narratives, there's a construction we have of who God is. That, that there is this, there are these parameters and boundaries in which the God we believe in operates. It's who he is. So for Abraham, for Moses, for Job, for Saul, these are all people that have this parameter and boundary of who God is based on their experiences with God based on maybe what other people have told them about God, based on um, their, their uh, per, maybe perceptions even of God. So, and, and take this into your own story. I, I think that every single one of us have a story that starts with this idea of construction, that we have these parameters by which God fit in. Uh, maybe it's our theology or how we read the Bible, or, or even at the beginning I said, like, we, we, if we read the Bible with this very literal uh, per- perception, that creates a construction of who God is, right? So there's all these things to add to our construction of God. For me, I grew up in the church, so it was it was uh, leaders and adults telling me who God was and, and, and what God is and how to trust in that God and how to relate to that God. And there was this construction I had from a very young age of who God is and how he operates and the things he believes in and the things he's for and the things he's against and on and on and on the construction goes. And that builds this, it builds this box or this structure, this fortress by which we keep God inside because God can't operate outside of that. But then something happens interestingly in all of these stories And the word we use is this word that is deconstruction. That what happens is there's these experiences that people have that start to move God outside of the boundaries by which they once experienced him. For Abraham, it's God telling him to kill his kid. Now, the easy thing to say is maybe, well, yeah, God was testing Abraham's faith and he knew Abraham would come through in the clutch because that's just how God is. But any of you listening with a kid, if God showed up on, on your doorstep or whatever medium he would talk to you and told you to kill your kid, would you do it? Would you be able to do it? And that's why I'm asking you to hear this more as a story right now, because there's a story of a guy picking up a knife ready to kill his kid. And, and we have to ask the question, what if, what if there's some deconstruction for Abraham in that, that he's sitting there on that journey going, why would God ask me to do this? And what if in that story is this interesting movement of deconstruction in the, in the timeline of this guy named Abraham? We go to Moses and his story. And so Moses at that point where the story, where I told the story I told you of, at that point, his story was that he led people out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. God had been providing for them. God had been taking care of them and leading them. And Moses goes to talk to God and he's gone for too long. And all of a sudden, the people who were let out want to make a new God and worship something because their mouthpiece for God was gone too long. And so God looks at that situation and goes, let's kill all of them and start over. And Moses is sitting there going, what about all the hard work we just did? What? I didn't think this is how you operate. You do, this, this, this is you moving outside of the box that I thought you were in. Take Job, for example. Job is God's guy. Job is, the, he's the most righteous man. He's the best in all land. He's literally performing sacrifices in the story on behalf of his kids, just in case the party got too out of control last night. That's a good guy. And God looks at, this, at the character named Satan and says, you know what? Don't physically harm him, but do whatever you want to him. 
And as the story starts to happen, as you continue to read that story, Job experiences deconstruction. That the God he once knew, the God he once understood, the God who he had a construction for, no longer, it wasn't the same God. Something changed in the dynamic, an experience changed things. And then we get to this guy named Saul, right? So Saul is this Jewish man killing Christians, persecuting Christians, arresting Christians, because what he thinks they're doing is bad, because he believes in this God of, of the Jewish faith, the one true God. And that same God of that faith blinds him on the side of the road and starts to deconstruct his ideas of who he is. That there's a construction Paul has, or Saul has, sorry, and, and there is a deconstruction that then happens on the side of the road as he is blinded and taken to Damascus. And I, I think these stories are so important because for me, I think they tell a narrative for a lot of us that we have a construction and we move into this really, really weird place called deconstruction. Now, here's the part of the podcast where I told you this is, I lost sleep over this talk. It's emotional. It's, it's, it's hard for me because what happens in my story is, is there's a construction of who God is. And then on May 20th, 2015, yes, I know the date. I remember the night well. My deconstruction started that just like the characters in these stories and their experiences, my experience started on May 20th, 2015 at around 7.45 p.m., Many of you know I used to be a youth pastor, and uh, as a youth pastor, um, I realized there's a lot of work that is done on behalf of your students to um, create what you want to teach and what you want to tell them, and, and you add to the construction of God in their hearts and minds. Like that, That's a big role for a person to take on, that they are someone who helps with this construction of God. And so... I'm someone helping with that. I'm helping with the construction of God. I'm helping these students, quote unquote, be good Christians, right? This is my job as a pastor. And I, I get to a place in 2015 where I'm getting weary of just creating content for them to ingest so we can keep just shaping the right ideas about God. And I, and I say that because the question inside of me is like, what do they actually need? What do my students want to hear about? What, what's going on in their hearts and their minds? And so I get with my friend, uh, Jake Demeray who was kind of like my right-hand man in our, in our student ministry. He's, just this, he's a great dude. I love this guy because he thinks so differently than me. And so we were this like really perfect yin and yang of argumentative, beautiful conversation. It was so fun. He's just my guy. And so I, I have this conversation with him about like, I'm just sick of assuming our student ne- students' needs. Do you think we could pull off a night where we just ask them what they need? And he says yes, and obviously questions a lot of the details of it, and it goes really, really well. And then I talk to my wife that day too, and I call her, and I'm like, hey, I want to call an audible tonight for our for our gathering, and um, here's what I want to do. I want to question students instead of just feeding them what I think they need to know. And she's like, that's a great idea. And I call my friend Larry, and I ask him too. And so I kind of run it through this grid of people. And so that night, we, um, we pull these two giant whiteboards into our um, – uh, area where we meet and, and Jake fires up two microphones, two handheld microphones. And I look at the group and I say, all right, guys, here's the deal. For years, all I've done is assume what you need and given you all of your thoughts about God. Like I'm, I'm one of those voices in your life that is telling you what to believe and think. And I said, 
I've done this, I feel like I've done this all on my own, shaping what you need to hear. And I said, I think it's time we hear from you. And so tonight, what I want you to do is I want you to share with us, if you're comfortable, courageous enough to share with us your biggest fears, doubts, insecurities, uh, tensions with life and faith, or just tensions with life, thoughts about God, just spill your guts if you're comfortable and if you're willing. And I got to be honest with you, for the next hour and a half was the most beautiful outpouring of thought and question and wonder I've ever experienced in my life. And I can, I think I can point to that night and say, I, I, and this is, this is a loaded statement, so please hear me. I think it's the best thing I, it's the most accomplished I've ever felt as someone who worked in ministry, who used to do it because the, the, Again, this is the night that started my deconstruction. This is the night. This is the night that completely changed my life. So we hand the mic to the first kid. His name's Caleb, and I have a I have a list of these statements that I've written down for you. And please excuse me if I get every time I approach this list, it it wrecks my soul because of what happened that night and then what happened in my own brain and heart. But we hand the mic the first night to a kid named Caleb, and this is where everything starts that night. And we write this down, and, and the whole group of students hears it. He says. He takes the mic and he says, I'm one in seven billion people. I'm not valuable. And he hands the mic back to Jake and he sits down. And he very quickly quickly sets a tone for the night that it was going to be a night of uh, maybe some intense thought and reflection and question. And, and what's crazy is in all of these statements and questions and fears and wonders that I'm about to read to you, I, I want you to just maybe, if you need to hit pause and reflect on it, maybe something hits home with you to do that, but know that all of these ideas stem out of a construction and idea that students have with God and there's something that's off, something that might not fit, that these students were brave enough to address these things. I'm going to read you some. What if I'm wrong? My prayers feel void and empty like no one is listening. Where do we go when we die? Why doesn't it feel like God listens? Can we lose our faith? And what do I do if I already have? My fear is not fulfilling my dreams, not being the best I can be, because no one thinks I can. How do I honor my mom and dad when they think I'm scum? God will never accept me. I'm afraid that God forgets me because I forgot him. I'm scared to let people in. I have a fear of rejection. I regret who I've been. God doesn't care about me. How do I prove myself to God? Giving up is the only option I have. I don't believe that love is real, but if it is and I kill myself, will God love me? I've been bullied my whole life. What's wrong with me? How do I be vulnerable and open, not worrying about what other people think about me? What if you can't forgive someone of something? My biggest fear is being rejected by God. I want to give everything to God, but it just doesn't seem real. 
What makes me not good enough for God and his favor? I'm afraid I'll never be loved and never be able to fall in love. And in the last one of the night, the one that solidified this moment in time for me of May 5th, or sorry, May 20th, 2015, was this girl grabbed the mic and she stood up in front of many of her peers and she said, will you go to hell if you're gay? And as I turned around to write that last one on the whiteboard, I waited for a few minutes because I couldn't hold back. See, it's emotional for me. It's tough right now saying it. I couldn't hold back the pain that my heart felt for this girl. Because in that statement is an idea she has that God's unconditional love is completely conditional. That she has a construction of God that because of an attraction she has and how she is wired, that she is going to hell. That this God of unconditional love actually has stipulations by which he loves her. And it's in that last statement I just made that the tension, the tension completely took over and the deconstruction started because the expectation then is that I take, and, and that was only a fraction of the questions. There was two full whiteboards of them that the whole summer we took off from youth group, I sat and stared at those questions just about every single day, wondering what the heck I was supposed to do with them. And the natural response that I, the natural, I don't know, that's not the, I'm sorry, that, that so offensive to, I don't want to offend other people that are working hard to be pastors. That's not my, that's not what I'm doing. I don't want to belittle anyone. But what the, I feel like maybe the expectation is that I would then take the Bible and answer every single one of those questions with a handful of verses and make it all better. And what happened that night is I realized that I couldn't do that anymore. That these thoughts that 15, 16, 17, and 18-year-olds are having are far too vivid and complex for me to slap a handful of verses on and say, just meditate on this and it'll get better. And the God I once knew that, that because of one night of writing questions on a whiteboard and letting students be vulnerable and honest and courageous, because of one night, the God that I had placed in a box and within boundaries began to break those walls down and it became to cr- it crumbled around me that night. Crumbled. And I spent the summer wondering if my job and faith and everything was just a lie. Because deconstruction is this place you enter because of experiences that you have these attitudes like, this is garbage, this is a lie, let's just burn this mother down. Like, maybe you know the feeling. That is how I felt. And I sat there in deconstruction in my job as a pastor and didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to approach these questions that students had. I didn't know I didn't know how to mend any of this or make it better and it killed me because I'd always thought God could do that. I'd always thought we could just slap the God band-aid on it and it'd be all better, but my experience told me that I have zero answers to these students' biggest fears, questions, frustrations and fears and, and, and insecurities. Zero answers. And so that next year, we did actually a whole teaching all year. We call it the whiteboard sessions. And we took different, we just took different questions and ideas off the whiteboard. I talked about them week after week. And you know what I did? I just asked even more questions. 
And I pointed some observations in the scriptures as best as I could. I just asked more questions because I wanted to turn these kids over to their leaders to just have more conversation because I didn't think these problems were going to be mended in simple answers, but maybe instead in some conversations with people who love them. I didn't know what to do. Following that summer, one of my former students' parents approached me and said, hey, you you seem weary. And I was like, you bet I am. <laughs> and he's like, cool. Um, well, my wife and I want to send you away on a trip by yourself. Okay, I'll take that. And he's like, we'll pay for flights. We'll pay for your stay. And I was like, great, where are you sending me? And he's like, well, we're going to send you to a monastery south of Portland. It's called Mount Angel Abbey. Go look it up. Chill place. I loved it. So he sends me off to Mount Angel, Oregon, to go to this abbey there and hang with this Benedictine monks for a week. And my whole life, my con- my construction of who God was and about faith and, and denomination and belief was that Catholics were somehow doing it wrong. So I go and hang out with these Catholic mo- Benedictine monks for a week, and I realize that they are the most genuine and beautiful men I'd ever met. And then I looked at their belief system, and I said, wait, for so long I thought they were wrong, and they are they welcome every single person to their abbey and care for them and love them. And they don't care what other people believe. They just take them in. They go to church six times a day. You wake up at 5 a.m., you go to church. You don't have to go, but you choose to. And so I wake up at 5 a.m. with these guys and I go to church and the singing's awful because they all just rolled out of bed. You get a coffee break. You go back to church at like 6.30. Um, and you go you go back to church at like 6.30 and, and then you, you get another break for breakfast and you have mass at 8.00. So three church services by by 9.30 a.m. And then they do some morning chores and you're allowed to just hang out. And then you go back for mass at noon. And then you got another break all afternoon. And then you go back for like a, a post-dinner service, which is great. Then you get like a little, you know, another little break. Go do what you want, rest, relax. And then you got this late night service. So six times a day they're going to church and I loved it. I loved it. I watched these men engage God and the divine in their way, and it was beautiful. And the deconstruction continued to happen. The walls kept falling down. The bedrock is crumbling because the construction I had of God didn't work anymore because of my experiences. That, like Abraham and Moses and Job and Saul, the experience changed everything. And then that December, so that was November 2015, December 2015, earlier in the year, one of my friends made a mistake. He, he made some poor choices morally and hurt some people. And I, I say it very vaguely because I don't want to hurt him again because he's been through a lot. So we as a friend group, we, we find out what's going on. He seeks, you know, to use the verbiage, he seeks forgiveness. And, and he, I think he makes the whole situation better. He works his butt off. He apologizes. He works hard. It's just so beautiful to watch him get better. And then his sin goes public because of someone else. And I remember, and this was a guy who volunteered with me, and I remember sitting in an office with three men who I trusted and respected, and they're all beating the drum of consequence and truth because of something that got dug up from months ago that he needs to be punished again for it, removed from helping out. And this kid just got dragged through the mud. And what sucks is nothing came of it that just like I had told them, it had been settled and taken care of, and nothing came out of it. And this kid was dragged through the mud and humiliated and ashamed and embarrassed. And he was hurt deeply. And I remember sitting in that room with these three guys, and I was like, what about Grace? 
What about love? What about embrace? What about these things that are just as much an active part of the scriptures as your drum of truth and consequence, and they would not hear me? And it hurt. Because I, for the first time, looked at judgment and consequence and quote-unquote truth through the lens of something that was harmful and hurtful. And that's exactly what it did. It hurt someone who I love dearly. And all I could think was, I don't, I don't know if this is how God operates. And the walls continue to come down and the construction continues to be deconstructed. We roll over to 2016. And uh, um, I worked at a church that did a lot of public events for the community. It was beautiful. It was really fun to be a part of it. But when you do a lot of public events for the community, you give up a lot of time with your family on holidays and various other things. And we're gearing up for another holiday to serve the community. And, and that was the year, for some reason, my wife decided to reveal to me that her favorite holiday was this holiday we were doing stuff on. And she never expressed that to me before. But she did that year, early 2016. And I, I sat back and I was like, I, for the last for years now have been taking away from my wife's favorite holiday for a job. And what was weird for me is, you know, sometimes when you work in the church, there's some groups that just beat the drum of family and how they're the most important thing. And then, but, but I didn't feel like my family was the most important thing. I felt like there was an expectation that I had to do my job before I could spend time with my wife. And that might not be true. I want to throw that out there. That might not have been actually the case, but that was my perception. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I I got to be with my wife. I got to I got to spend a holiday with her. And the deconstruction of what I thought about God and what he thought about family and what he thought about working on holidays and and all this stuff contributing back to me being a pastor was falling off. The walls kept coming down. And then it was April of 2016 that I had a long particularly long day of frustrating meetings. Meetings always frustrated me because they took way too long to communicate something so simple and people were inefficient and it frustrated me and I'm just, I think they're boring and there you go, a little bit about me. But I come home from a long day of meetings and I unload on my wife, Michaela, again, just unload on her about how frustrated I am. And she just looks at me calmly and gracefully and she's just such, she's such a better person than me. Oh my gosh. So she looks at me and she says, no one should be this tormented by their job, especially a pastor. And I was like, yep. That night we drove to my direct reports house, my supervisor, and I, I resigned. And he said, okay. And I told him a bunch of the reasons, some that I just listed to you. And he was like, okay. And he was really gracious about it too. And I kept having these conversations of resignation with people high up in the organization. And they were all very understanding and kind to me, which I'm so grateful for. It's good, good people. But I remember on the way out, this was the first time I had verbalized this, that, that I had the last meeting with the lead pastor, and I sat down with him, and I sat in his office, and I, I simply told him, I said, I don't know if I'm a pastor because I'm a Christian or a Christian because I'm a pastor, and I need to go figure that out. And he gave me full permission to go do that, but that was the best way I could have verbalized my deconstruction. I don't know if I'm a, a pastor because I'm a Christian or a Christian because I'm a pastor, and, and uh, spoiler alert, um, I left and realized that so much of my belief system was wrapped up in the role of being a pastor. 
And that's why the deconstruction was so immense for me. That all the ideas I thought I had about God revolved more around my job than my actual experience and thought around God. So I leave my job and I enter into the six loneliest months of my life. Didn't really talk to a lot of the people from my previous job. I didn't reach out to them, so that's not on them. A lot of it's on me. But it was lonely and it was depressing. You don't know how to reach out to people about tearing the walls down about your belief system because it's lonely. And my friend Lewis said it best one time. He's like, changing your world's, changing your worldview is a scary thing. Were his words to me one time. And I was like, yeah, it is. So I enter six months of this extreme loneliness. And then I, I wind up at this place called CMYK where I meet this guy named Matt Blakesley. Um, and we become friends. And I'm, I spend, I spent probably a good 15 months from July to the next November. I think that's 15 months. If my math's off, I'm not going to bother doing it right now. But I spent 15 months being lonely, depressed, in deconstruction. Let's burn this mother down. It's all a lie. And and I I still was, it was amazing that what happened this last November, November 5th, 2016. And I, I, I'm driving with Michaela up to the, um, Christmas stroll in Red Lodge. It's something we do every year together. We go together because we love the car ride and we love chit-chatting and we get on the topic of belief somehow because it's been so foundational to who we are in our relationship. And I said, I don't know where I'm at in all of this and I have weird thoughts and it's scary and I'm deconstructing and I'm telling her all this. We've talked about it before, but I'm really unloading again because if you can't tell, I'm a verbal processor. And she looks at me and she says, no matter what you believe, I love you. And this weight just dropped off of me. That that even though I was in this messy, deconstructive place, she loved me. She embraced me. She heard me. She knew me. The following Friday, Saturday, then the following Friday, I'm having coffee with my good friend Matt Blakesley. We do it every Friday together. Sometimes we have a lot of conversations. Sometimes we just stare longingly into each other's eyes. Weirds the baristas out, I think. Either way, we're sitting there and this topic comes up somehow and unprompted. I didn't tell him about the conversation with Michaela. Matt just looks at me and says, dude, I don't care what you believe. You're my friend and I love you and I'm on your side. And, and that was twice in a week that this permission hit me that, wow, I think this is okay. The following Monday, so we've got three experiences in like 10 days. I'm at lunch with my good friend, Larry. Larry, I'm going to tell you right now, is one of the most amazing men I've ever met. He is this mammoth of a man with bushy hair and a giant beard and is never short of an inappropriate joke. I mean, it's always, he's just pro at it. And he's just, he's just this obnoxious, large humble, funny man. He's just the best guy. And we're sitting having lunch like we do every Monday because he's my boy and we don't see each other as much as we used to. So we have Monday lunch now and we're hanging out. And um, I'm going to I'm gonna have to say this without all the expletives that he used or, or like crass jokes, but he just looked at me and said, man, you're my boy. You're my guy. Like you don't, I don't care. I don't care. Dude, doesn't matter where you're at. I got you. You're my boy, Blue, to quote old school. That's what he told me. And it was three times in 10 days that three people who I really love, I knew that they loved me and that I had complete permission to be in this at place of deconstruction. 
And I wonder, because of my story and the four stories I've told you, that those four stories showed a person that were allowed, people that were allowed to be in deconstruction because of their experience, that they had permission to be there. I had permission by others to be there. And what that leads me to believe is that you have permission to be wherever you need to be. It was that permission back in November that allowed me to start entering this thing called reconstruction. That my experiences with God and people are expanding the boundaries constantly by which God can exist. That, that the box can't be built anymore. It, it just The box can't even exist after deconstruction. And we have to understand the box just keeps getting bigger. That the box just keeps expanding because our experiences with God, just like in those four stories or in my story, the experiences keep changing the construction of God. That construction actually is, is probably, a, it's an important part of the process, but what's most important about it is that we have to deconstruct it. And in those stories, we see this permission that all of those people are right where they are in this process. If you go read any of those stories to continue on with Abraham, to continue on with Moses and Job and, and Saul, that their stories enter reconstruction because they have permission to be right where they are. And that, that's what I want to ask today is, is, do you know that you have permission to be right where you are in this weird thing called the spiritual journey, this relationship with God, that you have permission to be right where you are? are. Please hear me. Permission. That you might be in a place of construction still, and that's okay to be there. You have permission to be there and stay there. You might be in this weird place of deconstruction where you just want to burn it all down and be cynical for the rest of your life because it feels good to finally have these emotions. You have permission to be there. And you have permission to be embraced right where you're at and maybe move into a place of reconstruction. You Goodness, you have permission to think this is all bogus and ignore it. You have permission to be right where you are. And that's the whole thing around construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. So I think the narrative gives us some ideas that you have permission to be in all of that, to be anywhere in it and to be embraced and loved and to have experience. You have permission. Because it seems that's how the narrative goes. So know that wherever you are, however you are, whatever is going on, you have permission to be there. And the posture towards you is one of love and embrace and at least from my lens, attempted understanding to know what you're going through. With this permission is also something very interesting. Because with this permission, that if you're granted permission, others are as well. That we look at the people around us and we say, because I have permission, so do you. Now listen, I don't, I don't believe a lot of what my old friends do. From back when I was a pastor, I don't... We have a lot of differences of opinion now about life and God and all these other things. And guess what? They have my permission to be there. They don't need it. I'm just saying from my standpoint, I, they get to be there because I get to be here. 
So my friends, I leave you with that today. I leave you with a handful of stories and a handful of my own experiences with one, one thing. You have permission to be right where you are. Construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, none of it. You have permission. So embrace that. And know that right where you are is right where you need to be, I think. <laughs> Sounds like a cheesy Mr. Rogers tagline, but gosh, I believe it right now. You, my friend, have permission. I love you guys. I hope this adds to some good thought and conversation for you. Have a great week.